世界の果てを駆け巡るこの音が聞こえるはずだ何をバカなことを何だ何なんださあ我らと共にいざなおう君が望む世界へ Welcome once again to the Shadow Play Gaze. We are a podcast that discusses the 1997 anime Revolutionary Girl Utena. As always, I am one of your hosts, Derek Reining, and I am joined by a person who was voted most podcasting at Otori Academy. It's Christina. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I didn't have an episode to work off of, so. I love this career. That was good. Most, most podcasting. Most podcasting person at Otori Academy. Period.、Um, I mean, yeah, like, I feel like we would tie for that. I mean, you have two podcasts, so you'd probably. Yes.、Um, well, I feel like you'd be like the.、Um, our roles at Otori Academy would be like streamer BF and podcaster GF. Okay. 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 <laughs> I love it. I love it. We're, we're really, yeah, I think we would fit right in. We're both gay and have lots of issues.、Um, we would do great in a Tory Academy.、Um, <laughs> Gonna write that fanfiction, that self insert fanfiction.、Um, so, yeah, we aren't talking about an episode today,、um, but we are. So, before we jump into the final arc of the show next week,、um, we are doing our third mailbag. We will, of course, have at least one more mailbag after we finish the whole show. So, there's still time to send things in, and there's still, you'll hear us answer t- today some questions from way back. People sent them way a long time ago, but we're just now getting to them because.、Yeah. We can talk about them, but then there are still some sitting in the mailbox that we can't get to yet. So if you sent some a long time ago and we still didn't read it, we're going to read it in the last one.、Um, but yeah, we, I think we should just jump right into it because we've got quite a few this time. I think we, this is we the、do. most we've had so far.、Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. I'm glad people are as th-、um, into this arc as we are. Yeah. So、um, I can go first. Okay. All right, so this first one is from someone who goes by Kaustian Dior.、Um, <laughs> she, her, and she writes Hi, Christine and Derek. First, I just wanted to say that I love this podcast and the Uchino content I now get on my Twitter feed and really like how you both give such in depth analysis without spoilers. Thank you.、Um, this might be a ramble. We love to do that.、Um, <laughs> but I wanted to note that in the episode Wakaba Flourishing, that the part where Wakaba raises her hand to answer a question in math class, the teacher calls on Uchina. Who did not have her hand raised to answer her question, her question and not walk about, even though she had her hand up first. This moment always stood out to me, and I think this really says something about the show's themes of chosen and unchosen people. Wakaba was not noticed or chose, chosen to answer the math teacher's question, even though she raised her hand, while Utsuna was simply chosen to answer the math question. I don't think that detail really changes anything about Wakaba's, as Christine called it, girl boss moment. <laughs> She was definitely a girl boss for raising her hand first to answer the math question. Hashtag women in STEM. Since, <laughs>、um, as you all pointed out in the podcast, Wakaba having a secret, a secret which in Otori Academy seems to count as, some, as a type of social capital, this instills her with a sense of confidence to shine. Anyways, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, and I'm sorry that this is long. It's okay, we love it.、Um, Wakaba Flourishing is my favorite RGU episode, and I've watched this episode a lot. And thank you and your wonderful guest, Sushi, for doing it justice. Thank you.、Um, I mean, yeah, that moment is, I mean, that whole sequence is so interesting in terms of like seeing the way like Wakaba has changed.、Mm-hmm. Um, But it's also that's, as Kashi Diar points out, like this shows up how shows that moment shows kind of how much doesn't change. Like Wakaba can get more confident、um, and like work within her role and kind of approach becoming a main character. <laughs> But she's still like by like the constraints of the school and the constraints of like the social hierarchy of Otori, it's still Utena who's more important than her. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think obviously part of it I,、uh, like, plays into the whole like, trope of like, the one who's like, not paying attention, like, the, the less academically involved character getting called on in class. Like, that's certainly a trope. But I, I love this sort of approach to it、um, that plays into the themes of that arc. And pretty much, like, I feel like all of Wakaba's, Wakaba's character. Um, the idea of unchosen versus chosen. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Kaushin pointed that out because I, I don't think we noted that at all. But、um, I lo- yeah, I love that.、Um, mm. It's like we love Wakaba. She will always be a girl boss, even if Otori Academy is designed to not allow her to shine the way she deserves to. Exactly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, thank you, Kashin. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my turn? Yeah. Okay, this one is from an anonymous person. Um, we got a lot of anonymous ones this time. We've This is oh, the most we've ever gotten. So. Mysterious. Many okay. mysteries. <laughs> yes. Um, they say, hi, before you get to some of the later episodes, I just wanted to point out in Suwabuki's first episode, he uses a cactus pot to try to kill slash save Nanami. At the end of the episode, he throws it at the kangaroo's head and hits it. Period. <laughs> that that a, is an amazing observation, Anon. <laughs> <laughs> so I like I didn't like know what to make of this one at first, but I do think like I definitely didn't notice that it was like the same thing mm. from the beginning episode, like that he uses again at the end. And I think mm. it's interesting that like the same like he's using kind of like because his whole scheme is to like get Nanami to like him by like scaring her and like put Mm -hmm. her in mortal danger and then he once he has her close to him he's like trying to like be like the prince for her and like it's in his weird but he in his version it's be the older brother Mm -hmm. and defend her and so he's like using he just like it's like the same energy just redirected from a kangaroo <laughs> yeah from like trying to hurt nanami to like get her and then now that he's got her trying to protect her with that same like you say violence um mm-hmm. which kind of when we think about swabaki's like black rose episode about wanting to like to break the world or whatever he says kind of that like anger and like rage mm-hmm. being directed outwards because i was also kind of weirdly directed at nanami through his like attempts to hurt her <laughs> to have her Absolutely. And like also the fact that it goes from um, toward her to um, to protect her also implies that the vice like the reverse can also happen just as easily, Um, which to like in this moment is making me think about connections between Miki and Suwabuki about this idea of these characters who are maybe not um, the most traditionally masculine in the show. Um, Miki because of like just his personality and Suwabuki because of his age um, but they both still sort of um, Suwabuki more so like really play at masculinity or like try to figure out what masculinity even is for Miki he does so kind of under duress in his um, Akiotori uh, car moment um, where Suwabuki is like he's doing it because he's just that's his, uh, like a learned behavior he's seen from other people is, well, if you're going to um, be someone's protector or someone's prince, this is the way you have to behave. Um, so, yeah, I, this silly little comment that uh, originally <laughs> stumped you, I think, um, has a lot of insight. Just whoever said this, thank you. It was just really funny. Like, I just thought there was, like, going to be more to it. And they're just like, <laughs> period. And, but then I did think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did, it is interesting. So thank you. Yes. <laughs> I don't want people to think we're laughing at them. But it's just the fact they're synonymous. No, no, no. And I could not figure out, like... If I was missing something. <laughs> I mean, any mention of that episode out of context, like, will just make us laugh anyway. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Anand. That was a good uh, comment. I like that. Yeah. Um, so we, um, we have another Anonymous um, coming up next. So Anonymous writes, uh, regarding the Sionji hand wrapping slash bandage dropping scene, I believe when the bandage drops, it is indicative of the lasting emotional wound Sionji receives from Toga in that moment. Toga makes no move to rewrap or refresh his bandage, indicating that this is a wound Toga inflicts without intention to heal, or perhaps doesn't notice or care that was care that it was inflicted. Wrapping your own hand effectively is difficult. A wound on your in your hand affects all your actions in the future until this wound is healed, maybe even after. Um, I mean, yeah, like that was I, I really, really liked this one. Um, because I the the I mean the scene of like Sayonji Toga as kids fighting is I mean, so interesting because it's like they've been doing this for so long and it's always play fighting um, in the sense it's always kendo and and like even, you know, later on uh, the, you know, both participate in the dueling system. It is like higher level play fighting (laughs) with higher stakes. Um, But like even in this like very young, like kind of youthful uh, like play fighting, like Sionji is still hurt Um, Mm -hmm. and it's something that is like left with him. Um, and, like, the the bandage dropping away is interesting, because it's, like, exposing the wound. Mm-hmm. And it's also to think about, like, that wound wasn't, presumably it wasn't self-inflicted, it was from Toga. Mm-hmm. So it's a wound that Toga inflicts upon Sayonji, but then he, but 
Um, Sayonji has like a fond memory attached. It like the implication here is that he remembers this moment fondly as like a bonding moment between himself and Toga. Um, but it's for he's like happy that Toga bandaged a wound that he created in the first place. Um, so that really speaks to their relationship, at least at that point, where it's Toga is someone who um, doesn't really believe in friendship, according to him. Um, how true that is, we don't know, but like his behavior clearly shows that he doesn't value their relationship as much as Sayonji did at one point. Um, so I think that's also another way to sort of look at it is the role being pulled from Sayonji's eyes in that moment where he realizes that Toga um, created that wound in the first place. And so to like value that bandage was to value someone who would hurt you in the first place. I mean, and that's more broadly really similar to how Toga operates in the world. Like, he does things and doesn't get blamed for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, he, like, you know, acts harmfully and kind of, you know. And then gets uh, you to thank him for patching up the wound that he inflicted on you. So, yeah. yeah. Male manipulator. (laughs) Male manipulator, thanks. Um, Do you want to get this next one from Simone? Yes. yes. Uh, Simone writes, is Auntie Miki's stepmom, or does he just really... Um, want someone to talk to, parentheses, a counselor, like, what's up with that? Because they purposely didn't show her face, but that looked like auntie me things. <laughs> if that was Miki imagining the phone call, then, like, girly, pop, <laughs> Miki has a Madonna horror complex. horror complex, sheesh, counseling session, gotta get in on the books, babes. <laughs> <laughs> I was really excited for you to try to parse the Simone message. Yes. Because um, I read that, I'm like, this makes sense to me. <laughs> Um, I most, I think I, so, uh, someone's just confused about whether it's actually Anthe or if this is something that Miki is imagining, um, which I like, I like that interpretation of, um, this is, like, something that Miki is imagining, is, like, when he's envisioning who would my stepmom be, it'd be Anthe, the girl he has, like, a crush on, purportedly, like, that's, that's some, like, well, that's more of, like, I don't know, like, Evangelion, like, Freudian text, (laughs) like, territory, um, um, but I think it's more so supposed to be uh, showing that Auntie is still sort of this in this behind the scenes role um, that we saw her in when she was playing the role of um, uh, Rose Groom. I, why can't I remember? Mamia. Mamia, thank you. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so I and the fact that we see, get that flashback. Um, don't we get it at another point and from Auntie's perspective? I don't remember. I feel like we see that flashback again. Um, but I think the the implication there is that, is that like she's just there sort of playing that role, um, which would mean that this is like a, a thing that presumably Akio has orchestrated in order to create circumstances that would make Miki want to duel again, um, very similar to uh, the Black Rose saga of it all. Um, so yeah, I think that's my read on it is that she is just actually doing that my like you know i've gone back and forth on like whether and then we talked about this when we talked this episode mm-hmm. like is it actually auntie or is it is she we just is it mickey imagining aunties there and to me i think what i've settled on is it doesn't really matter like they both mm-hmm. Uh, both enter both ways of thinking about it kind of get at the same idea that like okay either auntie is the stepmother or she might as well be Mm-hmm. In terms of the way she's projected onto and like blamed for things, like given like this, like we know she literally does take on, like literally does impersonate mommy, and we know she's mm-hmm. capable of that. But we see even when she doesn't, you know, actively like take on the persona of someone else or the role of someone else, she is projected onto. Um, like in Unbelievable Jury, when Jury, mm-hmm. like you know, and we 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 know now as we've gotten further to the show that Auntie is like consciously trying to do that. Um, but it's like she doesn't even have to like transform necessarily for people mm-hmm. to like, and so like even if Mickey's just imagining it, it's the same. It's getting at the same idea that like Which, Auntie yeah. occupies this space where she can anything can be projected onto her. Yeah, she's like the bit player of Otori Academy. They bring her mm-hmm. in for any role that they need her to. Um, and I I do I think it's important that we get that flash as Miki is talking to them. We don't get it like after the phone calls over. It's not mm-hmm. like just a moment for us as we can imagine maybe Miki can like kind of sense who's on the other line. Um so yeah, I think like you said, I think both are interpretations equally make sense to me and both um say essentially the same thing or at least very similar ideas like you're saying. Um so yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, then I think I'm 
Another one from Simone. Very, this one's very concise. And this is something she had like, sent me like via text when she wrote to watch the show. And she's been dying for us to get to this. So from Simone, Saruka just dead. Damn double homicide. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, she's, I think she's getting at the idea, like, is Ruka actually dead? Because we don't, like, we're hearing about this secondhand from the shadow play, the, the shadow girls, play girls, and, and who I, knows how much we can trust it. From I them. do think it's fair to question if that's true or not. Did he just leave the school? Because we know you. I mean, we don't really know what happened to Makaje. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, like, did he just leave the school and we're just saying he's dead because he might as well be dead because he no longer exists in Otori? That's um, what I'm. Yeah. Like he's functionally dead. Um mm-hmm. and. Akio kind of like re- revived his corpse just for this little moment um, to get Jury in the car, basically. Um, but I, I don't know. I also do think that the show can be a little more straightforward than me sometimes <laughs> like play it out to be. I think I I want to kind of take at least that moment for what it's like at face value. Yeah. As, yeah. Ruka was a student who was sick and he died. And he was brought back by Akio to do all for this purpose or um, was like about to die and knew that and came back just in time or whatever. Um, just, But I, I think the whole point of that, though, is to show that Akio is still like very capable of essentially what he did with Mikaje. Um, so, yeah. He came, he served awful man, he died. Yes. <laughs> oh, um, bye, Blue. He had blue hair and no pronouns. Oh. Um, all right, you want to get to this next one yes. from Teresa? Yes, this is from Teresa, uh, she, her, and she writes, Hi, I wanted to say that I really appreciate the podcast so far. I was listening to the qualifications of a duelist episode while grocery shopping and trying hard not to totally lose it while listening to you all talk about uh, the hand-holding scene. The scene meant so much to me when I first watched and then rewatched the episode, and I honestly think I was a little, it was a little healing to hear others diving into it so seriously. Um, thank you. And Heart- then... She writes ask like more stuff like asking about guests guesting on episodes yeah. and we bestie we did not ignore this we just like don't check them out <laughs> yeah, until like absolutely. later. <laughs> absolutely, we would love to. Um, I love. Thank you so much for that message, Teresa. And like we would love to have you on. Yeah. So um, like like Christine said, we are just bad about like actually looking at the content of the mailbag before. Um, so yeah, we can. I don't know. We can reach out to her after we finish this. Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> And I'm, I, I don't know, I'm, I've been thinking about this, this is kind of a tangent, but I was thinking maybe by the end of this, um, if people wanted to send in, like, voice messages or something, um, uh, just, like, explaining, like, what their feelings on Utana in general are, once we get to the end of the um, show, or even after the movie, whatever, what have you. Um, so, yeah, I feel like that'd be a fun way for, if, if anyone was ever dreaming of, like, oh, I want to be on Shadow Play Gaze, maybe you could, like, you could be, and you just send us, like, a little voice clip, and that could happen. That would be awesome, we should do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll um, talk about this. But that's future stuff. Yes. Yes. We'll talk about this. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah. Teresa, I'll DM you after <laughs> after this. <laughs> so <Yes>. sorry, Misty. <laughs> but I I um, I love this message, and um, that's so awesome. Um, I agree. I I really loved hearing you, Christine, talk about the handhold. Um, uh, for those maybe who don't remember the handholding being between Utena and Ati, um, when Ati's asleep, and they're kind of at this sort of like right angle on a table. It's a very beautiful shot. Um. But yeah, that that means so much to me that people listen to us while they're like grocery shopping. They can hear us make stupid like gay Twitter references <laughs> in public. <laughs> I know, like whenever like I like whenever I see just like how many like downloads we get on like if it's also, like that many people like listen to us and like whenever so whenever we get messages about people like oh I listened we got we, there's another really really sweet one coming up that I did see when I was copy and pasting, mm-hmm. um and that I'm like. Yeah, it means a lot <laughs> when you guys uh, write it and share about the this podcast and what it makes you feel. Because it's, yeah, again, never imagined we would have this much of listenership and like, yeah, absolutely, thank yeah. you. And, yeah, especially the 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 way it felt healing part. I agree. This, I feel like that's how this experience has been for me too. Has been like very nice and healing. And I don't know. It's always fun to talk about anime um, with people who are not um, weird. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. So true, Bestie. Yes. Okay. Um, so, so thank you, I'll, Teresa. Yeah, thank you, Teresa. Um, so I'll do this next one from Audrey, our um, jury correspondent, who also got took several Sailor Moon tests, personality tests today. Oh, And yes. got tuxedo mask three times. Oof. So she's mm. kind of on thin ice. She's oh. struck. I mean, she, oomph in her flop era right now for that, <laughs> but, you know. So, yeah, this is for Audrey, she, her. Um, hi, gays. Here's a total spontaneous thought I just had. I keep thinking about the candle imagery from the Barefoot Girl, and I like both of y'all's takes. I don't remember what my take was on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, also think there's something there with the birthday cake we see at the start. You blow out candles to make a wish, but here it's almost like Oculus sealing or corrupting Utina's wish. Since wishes, desires, miracles are all kind of related in the show, it feels significant. But it's also, it's like... It's a reminder of like getting older and losing your youth. And Akio being a predator is kind of stealing from that from Utina. Two, IDK, there's a lot going on. Yes, there's a lot going on. I do I do really like this because it's like thinking about in the context of the prince, like Utina's like living her whole life, like basically like waiting to meet her prince again. And you could say that that is like like a wish that she's like holding on to this, like wishing it will happen, constantly looking for it. And Akio is aware of that. We know he has, he's claiming to be the prince um, and to be the one that pulled out of the coffin. Um, and so there's that. And, but he's like, the thing that's important, he's aware that that's something she wants. And he's like consciously playing at that. And so he's like taking this, like from Utina's perspective, very innocent desire and wish to meet her prince again and corrupting it to groom her. He's like stealing that, like as you say, Audrey, like her her youthful like desires for in service of what he's ultimately trying to do, which is like groom her and like lead her to a as we saw at the end of the Prince of the Night, a sexual relationship with him. Absolutely, and it's also very fitting. I think it's very telling. Um, or significant that it's still Anthe the one who's like holding the candles and she's the one who gets like associated visually with them um something to I don't know maybe consider like the fact that we I don't know we keep sort of dancing around this idea of like how much um is Anthe in control of her actions like how uh, in terms of like manipulating Utana and all these sort of background things we see her involved with um, it seems fitting that Akio would kind of maybe want us, the viewer, to associate her with this, like, horrible thing um, as to, like, shift the blame. Like, see, she's the one blowing out the candles, not me. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, yeah, the candles, we could talk, like, for fucking ever about candles. And we did. <laughs> and we <laughs> probably will for the rest yes. of our lives. Um, but, yes, I, I agree, Audrey. That's a, that's a good read on it. Um, um, yeah, thank you, Audrey. Uh, you want to get this next one from yes. uh, Joss? Yes, um, this is from Joss, and they write, Hey gays, I wanted to talk about a part of episode 31 that I think was overlooked and really plays into the whole Anthe working behind the scenes theory. So that's a good segue. <laughs> Before Nanami and Utena sleep in the gal pal bed, Anthe, Nanami, and Utena play rock, paper, scissors to see who gets the bed and who sleeps on the couch in the planetarium. When you watch that scene, it's very quick, but Nanami and Utena pick paper at the same time. Anthe is delayed and picks rock, almost like she's thinking about her choice. She could have easily chosen scissors and forced one of them to sleep on the couch. But I've seen Sailor Moon sub on Twitter make this connection, too, where it kind of feels like Anthe is actively taking a dive um, to protect Uta and Nanami. It's just so devastating to think about it like that, because even though Nanami is the target of Anthe's pranks, she still wants to protect her. Um, possibly because she sees herself in Nanami. And with Utena, I think she just knows not to interfere too much in fear of her brother, but I also see it as her wanting to protect Utena. Let me know what you guys think. I love the show, and you guys are the highlight of my Thursdays. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, I'm always so excited when a new episode drops. Keep up the great work. Um, thank well, thank you. you, Joss. That's awesome. And yeah, I, I've never really noticed that before. Um, and I think the way um, this sort of form of rock, paper, scissors would work, it, it would be whoever's odd person out would be the one who stays on the couch. So, but that's like not really the point of what we're going to hear. The <laughs> idea is that Anthe is um, like intentionally taking the fall, I think is what Josh said. Um, and I, wow, I, lo I really love that read and it makes, yeah, that scene all the more devastating. Um, and it really makes you consider like, what does Anthe think about all of this? Like, is, like obviously I'm sure she's like aware to some extent that Nanami is going to come into here at some point. Like I'm sure Akio sort of like monologues to her, about his nefarious plans, because that's just the way he is. Um, 
but um yeah i i really like that read and it makes a lot of sense to me that uh auntie would want to protect both of them from this fate um which is devastating but it also feels kind of I don't know. I always like like the idea of it actually being like pure chance, and like it was purely through chance that this happened, and that Nanami would be like end up have seeing walking in on this thing that happened to Anthe. Like that just I don't know. Both of those I, reads I think are really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, and with if you take the read that like Anthe lost on purpose, I think it's it, like it really lines up with like lost on purpose because she's like trying to like protect each and Nanami like like uh, this way we've been seeing Anthe like in the background of like of Akio like grooming Utena and like in the last episode like being very aware and complicit in what's happening um by like ha- helping Akio with the rose delivery scheme um it's it is Anthe's just so sad because she's aware of what's happening and like knows the path that's Utna and he's trying to lead Nanami down to some extent. Um, and it's like doing what she can to like mitigate that and to protect them. But like, it's also in this position where for whatever reason, she feels like she still has to participate. Like she can't just tell mm-hmm. them we need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is bad news. Um she can't do that. Like for whatever reason, she feels like she can't do that, and for a reason, she feels compelled to assist Akio in what's happening. But she's still clearly carrying around, as we see, kind of her watching things happen to Utena and having this look on her face. It's kind of hard to read and wanting to tell Utena things, but not being able to. It's just so sad. Like she's doing what she can, but it's just what she feels she can do is so limited. Um, mm-hmm. That perhaps the only thing she can do is, you know. Throw out rock yeah. <laughs> and, and like prevent them from getting the brunt of this, but you know, the rest of the the cogs in the machine keep turning. Absolutely, yeah, I, I like that read. There's also the idea that maybe it's like, well, maybe Akio just like knew this would happen and like insisted that she should throw no matter what, just so like because we kind of hinted at the idea or talked about the the possibility of Akio planning for Nanami to see that. Um, his uh interaction with uh auntie so but i, I don't know i prefer this read this pre- read makes me a little happier because like i like thinking about auntie like looking out for nanami and utana as much as she can um but yeah thank you for that yeah. so that's a good, um, good thing yeah thank you for that no that was like i did not i want to rewatch <laughs> that now because i did not clock that at all mm-hmm. um so yeah, next up we have a really nice anonymous message. Um, Hi guys, with the podcast coming to an end in a few weeks, I wanted to thank you guys for making it and let you know just how much it means to me. I moved across country late this summer and discovered this podcast a few months later. Listening to it over the over the past four months has been an immense source of comfort and joy for me. You guys always lift my mood and set me up for a good day. Cannot emphasize how many chores have been fun slash tolerable slash only got done because I had you guys to listen to. That deserves some sort of Nobel Peace Prize if you ask me. <laughs> While I'm still finding my own true-hearted friends you guys have always been there for me take care this one oh really God. this one's really sweet i that don't know who this really is sweet. but thank you like that's that's really really sweet because i've like i have so many i've had podcasts like that mm-hmm. like and just the fact that we're that podcast for someone is like whoa <laughs> that is beautiful yeah thank you so much mm-hmm. for sending that like I, i'm glad i'm glad that our stupid jokes and our horribly flubbed intros um can bring some joy and happiness to people um and yeah, congrats on the move too. And yeah, uh, and awesome. I hope you you find your people there. Um, okay. I just moved, as you heard me talk mm-hmm. about. I just moved to a different country in August while we were doing this, and just doing this podcast was a nice source of stability and like through some dif- some difficult times. So I know I know where you're at, and I hope it's all going well for you. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I moved. I can't remember had I already moved. I feel like I moved like right before we started recording. Um, yeah, you moved I, in in the. the like middle of June, which is mm-hmm. right when we start recording. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Um, and I found a lot of amazing people here. So I'm sure Anon will too, especially if they are as awesome as their messages. So mm-hmm. yeah, thank you so much. Um, 
Okay, so um, this next one is mine, right? Um, yeah, from Marrow. Uh, from Marrow, uh, she her uh, she asks, "What does Jury see in Shiori?" We've got two Jury. Some really two. The, these next two questions back to back are really funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why is she so in love with Shiori to the point that it seemingly causes her emotional distress and discomfort? Um, over the course of Utano, we see characters from chemistry form chemistry with one another. And Jerry eventually gets chemistry with Miki, Utena, and even Nanami. Maybe because there's only four episodes total dedicated to her relationship with Shiori, um, one of which Shiori isn't physically present. Or maybe it's because Shiori represents an idea more than a person. But by the end of Azure, paler than the sky, I'm left wondering, why Shiori? Curious what the gays think about the relationship and what Jerry sees when she longs for Shiori. Um, also, this isn't meant to sound so critical of Shiori. Sorry, I love her presence in the show. Inter- interactions with jury but i don't ship jury and jury if you know what i mean uh so grateful for this podcast thank you um i know exactly what you mean Mero. <laughs> <laughs> um i love this question so much um because i have thought that so many times about people that i have been attracted to or uh, pursued a relationship with why this person um so i guess that's um we've talked so much about how this show so um, feels so real and I think gay yearning can be so lacking in sense. Um, <laughs> so I relate to Jerry here and that she is in love with a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think what this is one of the aspects of the show I really love in terms of, like, Jerry's character. She's just so interesting and mysterious. and so Like, not mysterious, but, like, like all these characters what I love about the writing in Utena, it's like, they feel impossible to fully know. Like, there's so much, like, left unsaid. And we just, we get enough to, like, really get a grasp on them. But, like, they, characters, people don't always say what they mean, you know, can be kind of, like, elusive and cryptic. And, like, that's why this show is so fun to talk about because there's so much, so many empty spaces for us to, like, interpret within. Um, And with Shuri, that's particularly true because we have the whole like Ruka like coming from her past we never met this guy we kind of only have bits of pieces to work with especially with Shiori because we're introduced to her like through a memory um and then we meet her but it's years after the fact um and all this stuff has happened and and I think ultimately jury in the present is in love with the idea of Shiori, as you said, and it's Marrow in the message. Like, it's more that she's Shiori in Jury's mind represents an idea more than anything. So we're we're kind of left to wonder, like when they first met in like middle school, what was there? I do have to imagine they 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 were friends. We don't see that, but they were friends. Um, but that's what makes their present relationship or lack of relationship so interesting is that like they're both like operating on like false ideas of each other. And so like I like I'm obsessed with Jury and Shiori, obsessed with them. But like they aren't like there's no as it stands foundation for them to like be together. Mm-hmm. But there is, like, you, you like I would be so curious if they both like were to work through their shit and see each other as people, like, what is there? Because there's clearly something there, but, like, they're so, like, blinded by their images of each other that it's impossible. Yeah, they, like, I agree wholly with that. And, like, um, I don't know. There's, like, definitely two ways. Like, if you're sort of a romantic, you could be like, oh, you know, they'll work through this shit and, like, they'll see that they are meant to be together. But I feel like if we're going to, like sort of like the real world sort of thing i'm sure if they work through their shit they would look at each other and be like why like they would like sit down for dinner and realize they have nothing to talk about because they don't actually really know anything about each other um but i don't know i think like the question of why shiori is like because uh, jury is a gay idiot like that's no why. it's like i do think back to like some of my first crushes on girls and like they made no sense <laughs> I can. I don't have to think back that far, honestly. Um, just any any given um, Gemini I've ever interacted with is probably a good sort of Shiori equivalent in my life. So um, <laughs> sorry to any Gemini's listening, but um, you know what you did. Um, yeah, but I think I would just say like I think the fact that you don't get what jury sees as Shiori is like by design. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Like we only ever see Shiori being like horrible to jury. Or it's just like, like super pathetic in private, you know, and like in the, in the elevator, you know, we, they're just so 
such pathetic gay losers. Mm-hmm, 100%. Um, but I do, I mean, I, we in those, like, in the first flashbacks in Unfulfilled Jury, we do see, I mean, we hear them talking, like, oh, miracles, believe in the power of miracles. Um, and we see um, Shiori, like, handing her a rose. So, like, there was some sweetness there at some point, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But it's, I, I don't know how much of that was in service of, like, just getting close to Jury's greatness. Um, but again, that's, I yeah, like you said, that's, like, the whole, the whole shtick. Is that they... it's, a, it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, but I, I, that's a great question. I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people who wonder that too. Um, um, this is a great follow-up. <laughs> um, next one is from Audrey again. She, her, hello. I was wondering if you could make an official statement about the flesh eaters for Shiori movement. I only recently learned about it. And even though I have been vegan for 10 years, I think they had some good points. Mm. So so for the folks at home who don't know about the flesh eaters for Shiori movement, um, it's Maya. I'm not an expert, but from Audrey's searching on the subject and what people I was able to see in the empty movement discord and like, earlier Utna fandom, I'm guessing like late 90s, early 2000s, um, there was like a very strong anti-Shiori sentiment by like people who are very, very pro-jury and like jury can do nothing wrong. Like juries never hurt anyone. Jury's perfect. <laughs> that bitch Shiori sucks. Oh and the flesh eaters for, it's my understanding that the flesh eaters for Shiori were a reactionary movement created in response to strong anti-Shiori sentiment in the fandom. Um, And it's basically, there's like a, like, there's like a a board of people on it. Um, I saw that Erica Friedman is listed on the website and she's like pretty prominent on Twitter still. Um, And she's like one of the big, like she brought, she started like YuriCon or something. She's like, I saw she, she, that was the episode of Imagine Me and, uh, Yutana uh, that I listened to um, that she was on. Anyway, so we could always DM her. <laughs> if you have more Get some but more basic- insight. But basically, yeah, you you can see if you look flush your history up, you can see this like website. You can still like access where just like about you, we love Shiori and we eat flesh. Um, <laughs> so my official, st- I don't let's I don't want to speak on behalf of Derek. Derek can give his official statement, mm-hmm. but my official statement on the matter um, is. I would eat flesh for Shiori. Um, I'm a vegetarian. Um, I've been a vegetarian for like um, almost four years now. Um, but if Shiori told me to eat flesh, I would. Um, I think it's a, an empowering movement um, for us Shiori stands to um, stand up in the face of, you know, anti-Shiori extremism. Um, I think it's camp. It is. Oh, I'm, yes, it is camp um, with a capital C. Um, no, I'm right there with you. Um, I don't know if I would go so far as to eat flesh for Shiori. Um, Big fan. I know. I'm sorry. I'm going to be an, an enlightened centrist here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah. I. I um, yeah. No. Yeah. Why? But <laughs> I would eat flesh for Shiori any day of the week. I don't know why I would pretend. I've done far worse for far worse people. So, like, why not? Period. <laughs> um, yes. So that if is the people, official... If people have more Flesh Eaters for Shiori lore, send it to us. But Please. we are in support. Uh, based on what we've learned, we are in support. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, I'm just, yeah, that's just, I just love that that exists. Of, because, of course, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, this next one's from, uh, Livy, and they write, the part in episode 33 when Utana is talking about that random teacher, I don't think this is specifically relevant to what's happening in the episode, um, but she trails off trying to remember what they used to call the teacher, um, before they called her the teacup. She repeats herself, what was it? And she looks, sounds concerned, but she can't remember. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it kind of feels like maybe a nod at how reality and Otori is messed up. Um, maybe people forget things and things slash people disappear and maybe this is a moment in which Utena is trying to remember something but can't because it got erased or maybe isn't real anymore again though I might be reading into it too much lol um, well you can never read too much into Utena <laughs> first of all. Um, but I really I like that idea I um, think that tracks yeah absolutely I mean t- I, my initial read of it was this was Utena sort of like we said babbling like just like trying to think of anything to say um, but I do like this idea, too, of, like, sometimes the characters becoming aware um, or kind of pushing up against the idea of, like, 
maybe things in Oturi are more um, fluid than they realize, um, which is, um, I don't know, it's more sad when you think about the fact that she's, like, saying this to Akio, who, like, 100% knows um, that this is something that can happen, and he has some sort of sway over um, and so that just adds to the power dynamics there where Akio has all the information that Uchi has none of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. This, this tracks for me. Um, I don't have much else to say, but like, uh, I think it could be as simple as that. It's just a nod to, um, you know, as you said, brushing up against the reality. Um, and you have to wonder like, you know, might, you know, might someone be like, Hey, wasn't there a guy like with pink hair <laughs> like like kind of like super Yuna. creepy <laughs> um but yeah thank you for that um because we yeah. uh, we didn't quite know what to make that little exchange um but thank you um so i'll read the next one this one's from nella and they write um hi i just wanted to say i followed you guys in the hopes of eventually listening when you've completed the series and stuck around for the youtube memes in the meantime but i couldn't not listen to you guys talk about episode 33 as it is as it is one of my favorite episodes of anything ever and it hits and it hits me so hard, and I just needed to hear other people talk about it. I really love listening to you guys speak about the episode and your takes on it, and now I can't resist listening to all the rest of the podcast, too. So I guess my point of this message is just thank you for the really cool podcast and for speaking on such hard topics such as the one episode 33 covers. I really love listening to it. Thank you. And once again, a very, wow. very sweet message. Oh, my God. Um, wow. <laughs> this is just like a fluff piece. <laughs> we left out all the ones that tell us we're horrible people. Like, yeah. should, we should quit podcasting imme- immediately die you fugly slut yeah. <laughs> I, I mean i i was joking when i sent you that okay <laughs> um but yeah thank you so much that's that's very sweet nella um um okay this next one is from uh liza uh she writes hey i love your podcast i binged all the episodes alongside my first utina rewatch your analysis and commentary has really added a lot to my understanding of the show and made me enjoy it even more very sad to be all caught up and waiting for new episodes, but happy to be able to participate in the mailbags now. We're glad you're here. Yes. Um, I had something to add about the Miki episode. I think that's the right one where they reference Daddy Longlegs. When I first watched, I was reading along with Mark um, Oshiro's Mark Watches blog, and someone, oh, I remember, sorry, random sense mm-hmm. memory of being in high school. Um, so, <laughs> and someone in the comments, I think, provided more information about that reference, so I wanted to pass it along. Um, Daddy Longlegs is a book from 1912 by uh, Jean Webster. Uh, the main character is an orphan girl who receives aid from an anonymous benefactor who funds her education in exchange for her writing him letters. Um, the, the only thing she knows about him is she saw his silhouette shadow through a gateway, and he appeared to have very long legs, hence the name Daddy Longlegs. The scene in the episode where Akio comes to pick up Kozue and is standing in shadow in an archway, I think is supposed to reference this. Oh, okay. Um, the first reference in this episode is when the student council are discussing how End of the World is like Daddy Longlegs, um, a mysterious figure who directs their lives from behind the scenes. They don't know his intentions. Um, there's also the implication of a predatory relationship with an underage girl, um, which I think come through most in Kozue's scenes where she calls Akio Daddy Longlegs when talking to Nanami and then goes to meet him for a date. I don't know how much of those same implications were in the novel since I haven't read it, but to modern eyes, it definitely seems inappropriate for an older man to be taking so much interest in a vulnerable young woman and insisting on a one-sided relationship with her. Um, She writes him letters telling him all about her life, but she's not allowed to know who he is, holding huge power over her life. She's financially dependent on him. In the show, Akio also holds huge power over all the kids' lives and uses that power to hurt and control them. I don't know if the writers were intending this to be some sort of commentary on the novel or a modern adaptation of it, or if it was just a throwaway reference. I definitely would not have heard of it without that comment on the Mark Watches blog, but maybe it was a more well-known cultural reference in 1990s Japan. I think I'm missing something. Um, anyways, <laughs> I meant this to be a short comment, but apparently I had thoughts. Whoops. <laughs> but thank you for all the work you put into the show, and I can't wait for the next episode. Um, thank you, Liza. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we um, found that reference um before the whole like the fact that it was a novel but i don't think we had all that context no because so that was something i just like googled in the middle of recording Mm -hmm. and saw that and yeah so there was and i do remember seeing this that there was an anime that came out in 1990 adapting the novel Mm -hmm. so this is this is a yeah it it was out there in the sort of uh conscious it would be a reference that i think a lot of people would get back then um but yeah, that's thank you, Lisa, for pointing that out. And I like the idea of thinking about Akio as that for not just 
the individual like girls that he preys on but also literally like the student council as end of the world he's doing he's acting as daddy long legs he's sending them letters anonymously and they don't get to know who he is um and that's something that i think people tend to forget um mostly because they're um like uh, that akio has just as much sway over like toga or sayoji or like any other given character and not just like Adi or utna or nanami or whoever um like they are just as prone to his manipulations it's just um because they are not a young girl he has to approach their relationship in a different way um so yeah i liked that um little tidbit there in liza's message um yeah so thank you liza for providing more of that context for us Yes, thank you. Because again, we saw that we're one hundred percent sure if that was it, but that it sounds like that is definitely what the, all that all that is referencing. <laughs> um, so this is another one from anonymous. Um, <laughs> why did Choo Choo have to go in the egg? Why did something need to be in the egg at all? Why did it have to be Choo Choo in the egg? Did Anthe pack Choo Choo in a big lunch before he hopped in the egg? <laughs> did Chuchu die? Oh. Did Chuchu remember Anthe and Satchutana? Or did he go back to them based on instinct? If so, I'm, I'm just laughing because like these are good questions. <laughs> these are amazing questions. And also Chuchu is spelled different in every single yes. sentence. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> I'm so sorry you never said this, but it's true. It's like every like every possible way of writing Chuchu. I love this. Thank- I'm already obsessed with this person. Okay. Um, did he go back to them based on instinct? If so, is this instinct relevant symbolically? Does Choo Choo feel differently about Nanami now? What message was Anthe trying to send Nanami? There's a lot of evidence that in the ways Nanami manipulates, that ways that Anthe manipulates Nanami, that she wants to unmesh Nanami from Toga, or at least strain her relationship to him. At the end of this episode, Nanami is what Anthe is thinking about. Um, Anthe looks unconcerned with Choo Choo, but is undeniably deep in thought. Would Chuchu be a symbol of a possible new relationship for Nanami outside mm. of Toga? Would Chuchu be the be some other symbol for Nanami such Anthe? A new hope for Nanami is something Nanami can create for herself completely outside of Toga and almost certainly apart from him. Wow. Mm. Okay. You know, I'm at first I was a little lost, but I, I'm actually, I think they're onto something here. I think Chuchu is the ultimate symbol of lesbian Nanami. <laughs> I do I do think um the there's a lot of evidence in the ways that Anthe manipulates Nanami that she wants to unmesh Nanami from Toga. I think that's an interesting read on it. Mm-hmm. Um and like the egg certainly puts a strain on their relationship um because there's the Toga homophobia moment. <laughs> I mean, Nanami is now, like, caring for something other than Toga. We see, like, we mentioned that, like, Nanami, kind of much like the cowbell, like, takes on this, like, new identity, like, separate from Toga. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also what the cowbell does. And, you know, these are both pranks by Anthe to some extent, it seems. Uh, but they do serve to, like, kind of push Nanami to, like, identify herself outside of Toga. Hmm. I love um, that. Hmm. So, I, the choo-choo of it all... <laughs> Um, I'm, I just like, I'm not laughing at the questions. I'm, I was laughing at how many there were. And then you were right. <laughs> In quick every, succession. Every possible way of spelling choo-choo. <laughs> and I'm That's also cute. a little high right now. So once I realized that, like, it made me feel a little, little, little wild. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you get so high, you get choo-choo. Um. <laughs> you should have like gaslit me and be like, no, Christine, they're all spelled the same way. <laughs> what is your problem um uh, but as for like why is choo-choo in the egg or like why it had to be him did he is it a new choo-choo uh, i don't know we might have to keep watching to find out i don't think we've really seen much of choo-choo we just get little tidbits of him but we don't really know like we don't have a good sense of like is this a new choo-choo psych like a new version of choo-choo is it the same choo-choo who's just gone through like a little metamorphosis um I don't know. Lots of big ex- existential questions to ask about. Much to think about. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on? <laughs> no, like that's, I I have too much to think about. Sure. Um, um, thank you. I don't. You know, that. like uh, I don't know. I can't imagine what's going on in Chuchu's head. But yeah, There's I just read of Nana, this be, these being like intentional on Ambi's part to sort of make Nana, force Nanami to reconsider her relationship with Toga. Those. Which she ultimately does when she's like, if we believe that Anthe is purposefully lost rock, paper, scissors so that she would be in the room with Akio so that Nanami could walk in on her. And that does serve to like 
push her even further away from Toga. Really. Um, which honestly, I mean, it reminds me a lot of um, one of my favorite, like, really understated relationships in Evangelion, which is between Rey and Asuka, um, mm-hmm. where they don't really interact too much. And when they do, it's, like, very contentious. Um, but I would argue they end up having the most impact on one another's character by the end of um, the show and the movie. Um, and that's kind of a similar sort of relationship here, where, like, Nanami and they have a very at least one-sided contentious relationship um but they both learn and grow from each other um or at least nanami learns and grows from Ati even when she's not realizing it um so yeah i like that thank you yeah you want to get the next one on (laughs) sure um another anonymous person in nanami's egg when the laser beams shoot from near nanami's feet they shoot three times and sound very similar to elephants oh if this is intentional what would be the point of linking these two together um Hold on, take this next sentence out if you think it's spoilerish. It's not, because we, yeah. Okay, so um, would this sort of be a signature of Anthe's if she influenced this dream to link the events together to to Nanami? Or is it meant to have meaning to Nanami outside of that? Um, Nanami is starting to catch on and or more willfully ignore the ways Toga treats and manipulates her. Is it Nanami's own brain linking these events together where Toga did X shitty thing to her and she didn't recognize it as cruelty at the time? Would the three be meaningful in situations that Nanami can recognize where cruelty or more of a biblical reference to being betrayed three times? Um, Oh, wow, uh, I like. I didn't really notice the elephant part of it. I like that. That maybe would be like a joke on the part of like whoever was handling the sound design. Um, but I, I like that this idea of this dream once again being. Um, it's very similar to the um, dream that Nanami has in the cow episode, um, where she imagines being a cat led to slaughter by Toga, um, and so it would make sense to sort of draw that thread even though I, I don't do we see toga in the egg dream at all we just kind of go to the forest and we see the giant egg right yeah yeah so but i, I like this idea of like bringing those two together and finding that connective tissue between because it's it's significant that both of these episodes have dream sequences in it because we i don't think we see anyone's dreams except nanami's right as yeah, far I as i can right remember. yeah which is i love i love i love nanami so much <laughs> um but um yeah so i think um this that episode maybe less so than um episode um 30 or her tragedy um but it does serve to sort of create a more of a rift between nanami and toga or at least force nanami like we said to think about why toga does what he does and like how it affects her um as to like the significance of three blasts I, I i don't know what to really read into that do you have any thoughts on that yeah no thoughts that empty yeah i think it's just uh, three is a nice good number to have it's a rule of thirds comedy all that good stuff um but i like i mean there's there are a lot of threes associated with the nanami she has her three lackeys she has the three elephant boys um so it would make sense that she gets blasted three times with a laser um <laughs> but yeah so um Thank you. Uh, I I also like the idea of it being like a biblical reference, the Mm -hmm. idea of it being, but I think that speaks more to the idea of three just being a universally very um, holy, powerful number. Um, Yeah. Any other thoughts on this, the Nanami laser egg of it all? No, I don't think I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Anon. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we have another non, these last two are also anonymous, so um, our second to last one. Um, in a past mailbag episode, another listener asked if Nanami becoming specifically a cow was relevant. It's uncertain what knowledge the writers had of the views of Hindu, pe- Hindu people on cows, as they are protected and venerated as a sacred symbol of life, but they are not worshipped as some people believe. This is also my very limited knowledge, and also the caveat that Derek and I reading this don't yeah. know enough to comment on whether Absolutely. that's accurate or not. Um, either way, this is relevant uh, because throughout the Nanami episodes, Anthe is conveying a message to Nanami that her affection for Toga is dangerous and misplaced. Toga gives Nanami crumbs and Nanami's feel special. However revered and sacred Nanami may be, be made to feel, Toga ultimately sees her as a dairy cow to be milked, bred, and slaughtered. I really like that. Of yeah. like Nanami viewing herself as a sort of sacred cow, um, but in reality, she is just like normal livestock. Bread for slaughter. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that is. And she, yeah, it's all about um, how Nanami sees herself and how she thinks Toga sees her, mm-hmm. um, and what that means. So the dream is like her sort of like, like sort of knocking up against the truth of it all. We keep talking about this idea of 
um, characters, um, or at least like the young girls, like sort of like pushing up against the eight, like they're almost there, just like one more step and they could really understand like the bigger picture of what's going on. Um, but it's just that there are people in their lives like Akio, like Toga, who intentionally don't want them to go that far. They go out of their way to keep the um, them from like thinking about things like that too much, which is why it's significant that um, other characters, like characters like Anthe do intentionally push other characters to have those realizations. Um, women supporting women, we love it. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I I like that read of it too. Like you said, the idea of the duality of what a cow can represent in different cultures and how both of those can be true here. Um, that's once again, I think I've talked about this before, but this show does an incredible job of um, incorporating um external symbolism and also having its own internal symbolism within the context of the show and um playing on cultural ideas and also ideas that it's sort of teaching us through its visual language um so yeah awesome great yeah great uh comment and on on cows <laughs> yes so you want to take our last question yes another anonymous one um, they write, hi, gays. Do you have any commentary on Auntie saying how she doesn't want to look at the real stars tonight, particularly uh, particularly when you consider the scene in their, their eternal apocalypse where Akio's body over Auntie is made of stars? Yeah, that wasn't really something we touched on. We kind of referenced it, but it's the idea that like Akio loves stars. Um, and so maybe Auntie would have an association with stars that's just purely bad. Um, so of course she would prefer fake stars because they can't hurt her. They can't touch her. The like how um, uh, Akio and his real stars can hurt her and affect her. Um, yeah. Do you have thoughts on that? The idea of the fake stars? Yeah, we we touched on it a bit, and I didn't, but I definitely didn't think about how like like Akio when we do see the Akio's body is like made of stars. Um, mm-hmm. Nitsuki moment. I was um, about to say <laughs> my body is made of crystal stars. But <laughs> Um, so I do, I think that's interesting. And yeah, so like my read on that, like, I think when we watched it and still now is just like the, the real stars, like are the reality of what Akio, of what Akio is and what he is doing. And the fake stars are like the kind whatever like image of Akio Anthe is like holding on to, to like make her not feel completely terrible about everything that's happening mm-hmm. it's so if, like almost dissociating yeah like real. if she were to look at the real stars if she were to like look at the reality of what she knows happened to utina that night um like it might be too much to bear so the, the least she could do is look at the fake stars that, that are safe that are controllable yes. um you can turn them on and off um, but it is, I think it is interesting that she still chooses to look like she's not yeah. the stars, period. She still can appreciate um, representations of stars. It's just she can't bear to look at the real ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our poor girl. Um, but yeah, thank you, Anand, for that. Um, and I think that that wraps up our third and penultimate, maybe, mailbag. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll do at least <laughs> one at the end of the, the whole show. And then we're planning maybe on doing one. We were trying to do the movie, and we might talk about the musical. So, like, we'll oh, like. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> we have. There may be more. This we might have be like to talk about the musical. This might be like half of the mailbags we do. Apparently, we might do twice <laughs> as many. I don't know, but um. But this is one of the last of the of the main ones because after we finish the show as a whole, we'll only have so many uh, things to talk about after. True. Um. So. Yeah, but this is a fun one. We got a lot of really good ones. We did. Thank you all so much for sending in these, especially the really just like purely co- like complimentary ones. Mm-hmm. Um, very nice. And we seriously, I feel like every other episode, I'm like on the verge of tears. Like, I love you guys so much. I know. Um, but, but seriously, like it, this has been amazing. Um, and I'm, it's sad to think that we're almost to the end, but it's also really exciting because I feel like there's just like, it's, it, who knew it could just even get better from here? Because I feel like we've kind of, um every episode we're like this is just amazing so yeah i'm excited to keep talking about it same yeah like i don't want it to end but i'm like i was walking home last night thinking of uh, not last night there's a couple nights ago walking home thinking about the finale and just like Mm -hmm. going through the finale in my head and like thinking about talking about it and like i don't want to get there because i don't want to end but i'm (laughs) so excited to get there because it's like my favorite like 22 minutes of television and i'm just like 
we're, we're getting there and there's so much to talk about and even when we're done like we still won't be done like we'll have some more things to talk about and absolutely you know, who knows, who, knows who, what the future holds I think it'd be fun after we're all done doing the regular podcast every once in a while like <laughs> just talk about it you know like that, I mean that would be I'd be very down for that um especially yeah. if another musical um sort God, of materializes I, so. I mean they're doing a new penguin drum movie maybe a new to nothing he could be it is uh, this, this, we are coming up on the 25th anniversary there's a lot of hopes that there will be cool things announced for that um, i know there's ever. i know there's some sort of like garage kits that are coming out but like <laughs> um, that's all the only th- as far as i know it's the only thing that's been like announced uh for the 25th anniversary so okay. fingers crossed something cool gets announced but um but yeah, we will be back next week, back on the regular pod. Um, we will be talking about starting the first episode of the the last arc of the show, the Apocalypse Saga. Um, talking about episode thirty four, the Rose Signe. I think sometimes it's just called like the Rose Crest. Um, really juicy one. Mm. Um, much to discuss. Very excited. We might have a guest. Who knows? Mm, mysterious. <laughs> but um, yeah. So, Christine, do you want to tell the people where they can find you on the internet in the meanwhile? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at xteen underscore files. And you can read my writing about Survivor and InsideSurvivor.com. The 42 cast is not actually out. Uh, so with the next week or two, we'll have our draft. We've already drafted and just haven't written the Ooh. stuff yet. Uh, I'll tell you who's on my team after we hang up. Yes. Um, <laughs> Please do. Um, yes, that's me. Derek, where can people find you? Um, they can find me at Bring Derek's on Twitter. You can also follow my other podcast with our good friend Sam Stanish um, at BitterJurisPod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we are currently talking about Book Two of Legend of Korra. We're finally in the good episodes of that season. Um, and Survivor 42, like Christine said. Um, the cast is out, so um, we'll be doing the cast assessment soon. Probably, I mean, oh, I think we have someone very special lined up for that actually, so that'll be fun. Much <laughs> to think about. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, thank you all for listening. Um, yeah, and, and we'll for sending stuff. Yeah, thank you, and and send stuff for the next one, and we'll be back next week with the uh, episode thirty-four of the roast. And yeah. Awesome. Uh, okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.